The world of agriculture technology is vast and constantly evolving, with new innovations and companies emerging at a rapid pace. At AgTech Media Group, we understand the importance of staying updated and connected in this dynamic industry, and that's why we're thrilled to announce the launch of our new AgTech Company Directory, a comprehensive and user-friendly resource designed to help you navigate the complex landscape of AgTech innovators. More than just a list, it's a curated collection of companies leading the charge in transforming the AgTech sector from startups pioneering new farming methods to established companies adopting cutting-edge technologies. Our directory spans a wide range of leaders dedicated to advancing agriculture through technology. Whether you're a farmer looking for the latest in crop monitoring tools, an investor seeking promising ag tech startups, or a researcher interested in sustainable farming practices, ag tech directory is designed to cater to your specific needs. You can filter by sector, technology, size, or location to find exactly what you're looking for. To learn more and to claim your company listing, visit agtechcompanies.com. One of the things I want to really hope the industry does is don't disparage other ways of producing food because everybody's working their butts off trying to, you know, trying to do things right. My mom always said, don't raise yourself by pushing other people down. And I always took that to heart, right? You know, just you can talk about your benefits without being disparaging to way other systems are, but let's build it together because especially in food and agriculture, there's fewer and fewer of us every year in it trying to produce for more and more people on the planet. So let's think about it as we're all playing a part in this thing. Welcome to the Vertical Farming Podcast, weekly conversations with fascinating CEOs, founders, and ad tech visionaries. Join us every week as we dive deep into the world of vertical farming with your host, Harry Duran. Vertical Farming Podcast, Season 2. Welcome back. If this is your first time listening, I'm positive you're in the right place, as this is the show where we interview fascinating CEOs and founders of the leading vertical farming companies from around the world. I'm your host, Harry Duran, and in case you missed last week's episode, I had a really inspiring conversation with Mario Vitalis. He's the founder of New Age Provisions, and he told an inspiring story about how he was able to get started with his container farm and the impact that it's had in his community. Special thanks to our episode sponsor, Series Greenhouse Solutions. If you're looking for a greenhouse solution that will suit your specific climate and growing goals, then talk to an expert from Series Greenhouse Solutions. Series combines passive solar concepts, innovative climate control technologies, and customized grow systems to ensure that their growers are yielding the highest quality product year-round for the lowest operational cost. Visit SeriesGreenhouseSolutions.com, that's spelled C-E-R-E-S, GreenhouseSolutions.com, to learn more. This week, I get to speak to Dr. John Purcell. He's the CEO of Unfold. John has dedicated his life to helping farmers safely and sustainably grow food using less of the earth's natural resources. In his new role as president and CEO, John is continuing the same mission to improve the food ecosystem with more sustainable, fresher, and better tasting fruits and vegetables. In this episode, we discussed John's previous work at Bayer and Monsanto, which led to innovations in diverse technologies for important global crops. John opens up about the passion he has for sustainability and the respect he has for farmers, along with the mention of his family ranching operation in Montana. I was fascinated to learn what John picked up from his time working at the U.S. Department of Agriculture and the highlights from his overall career. We dig into some of the leaders and mentors who have influenced John and how his time at Bayer led to the transition of his current role as CEO of Unfold. 
We learn a bit about the challenges of growing a startup and building a team, and John reflects on the many segments of vertical farming and where Unfold operates in this landscape. All in all, a fascinating discussion with someone who definitely has his finger on the pulse of what's happening from the world of biogenetics. As a reminder, if you enjoyed this episode or past episodes, I'd love it if you leave a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. Okay, let's get into this great conversation with John. So John Purcell, CEO of Unfold, thank you so much for joining us on the Vertical Farming Podcast. Oh, Harry, thanks so much. Pleasure to be here. So given, uh, we love to date stamp these things just as a point in time. We are at November 5th, 2020. I, I don't know about you, but I haven't been asleep earlier than 2 a.m. the last two nights. <laughs> yeah, not, it sort of goes with 2020, though. I mean, this whole year, yes. been, you know, everything, you just, just kind of go with it because everything, it is what it is. So. I've been seeing people compiling the list of things that happened in 2020. And when you put that list together, like Kobe Bryant dying, COVID, like the election, and some of these things are like, wait, that happened in 2020? I thought that was like last year. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I think we're all waiting for January 1st. That's for sure. Yeah. So, yeah. so just as a check-in for you uh, and your organization and, and your family, what's been the impact uh, from a COVID perspective? Well, it's been interesting for me, personally, professionally, of course, starting a company with COVID. So hiring people yeah, that yeah. you've only met by by, you know, by, by video and, and uh, yeah. conference calls. Uh, Family-wise, it's it's hard because uh, I live in California. My kids are on the East Coast. Although we did uh, we did make the big drive <laughs> last month to get to the East Coast, so we're we're seeing them okay. again. They've entered our pod for for the time being. <laughs> the, so, the safety pod. The safety pod, right, right, right. But yeah, we did the COVID test on both ends. So yeah, it's just uh, um, it's hard because you you know you're just used to certain things in life and you just can't do it. And so you just you know like everything. Uh, just take it a day at a time and just keep plowing ahead. Yeah. I was looking at your past education and I'm, I'm curious when, if you can remember going, going that far back, when the interest in science started for you. <laughs> that far back. Thank you, Harry. <laughs> I appreciate that, the way you framed it up. So, no, I, for <laughs> me, for me, I was just, I, I was one of those kids. I love being outdoors and, and science. I love science too, but I love the nature piece. And so for me, that was, that kind of went hand in hand. And uh, so, you know, I just love being active outside, but I also had this, in, in, you know, I was always bringing home some animal or another, you know, I just, I lived in DC actually, <laughs> right outside DC, but there's woods everywhere, okay. everywhere. So Rock Creek and all that. So, but uh, yeah, I just always had kind of a, a, an interest like that. And then as I started in school, and then you realize you're, you're pretty good at science and math. It gets easier. And so uh, for me, it was a pretty easy track, actually, to say I'm probably going to do something in the in science and math arena. Is it one of those things, and I'm, I'm, I'm dating myself because I just turned 50 last month. So I'm thinking of back, back when science labs and all the, and, you know, at that time that the people, who, the kids who took the science weren't, weren't the cool kids and you're like the nerdy kids. And then later on, it's like, okay, now we're the ones who are like starting companies and, you know, it all comes full circle. Yeah. But I always, I always loved sports too. So I had like two worlds, you know, and so I was like, yeah. I was a science nerd and, they, and then, you know, on the teams, say, that's the guy that's a, he's a nerd, you know, but uh, no, but uh, to me, uh, um, it was, I always thought it was cool, frankly. And uh, it's funny, my, uh, my daughter is actually in uh, agriculture communications, and uh, she was laughing. She goes, "Dad, you're in vertical farming. You actually are cool now." <laughs> I thought that, I said, "That's a great when you get the stamp approval from a 27 year old." I said, "All right, I'll yeah, take yeah. it. I'll take it." So, yeah. Have you had a discussion with her? Like, what do you think about it 
is cool to her or what is it you know that that, that it's attractive to her because obviously she's in the industry now yeah and i think herself. for her because one of the drivers for her to to go into uh, into agriculture is she has a really firm uh commitment to sustainability and she works uh for for mm. a group uh field of market that really deals with trying to tell the story of of, of farmers and sustainable practices so for her you know she mm. looks at uh technology and innovation as enablers of sustainability. That's something I feel really strongly about. I think sometimes people have this kind of romantic view that we got to go back to the way we used to do things versus technology and innovation really being an enabler of sustainability. So for, I think for me and my daughter, that's a something, a passion we share that, you know, we don't, you don't have to look at innovation and technology as, as an antithesis to how to grow food. It's actually a great enabler to provide the kind of, food and processing the produce world, the all food experience, the way, you know, consumers are asking questions, not just about what, what the food is, but how it was grown, who grew it, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But I really do think that we've got, you know, we're making progress, people understanding that technology innovation can be a, a driver for sustainability rather than, a, you know, running counter to sustainability. When do you think that was in, that became important for you, or or was that something you were taught, or how you were raised? This important this idea of sustainability and then the importance of it, because it seems like it's something that's been also now passed on to your daughter. Well, I think for me, so I grew up. Uh, I was born in D.C. I'm a native Washingtonian. We do actually exist, <laughs> but the, uh, uh, but but I also spent uh, summers down at my my aunt's uh, corn and soybean farm, yeah. which was right right near the Chesapeake Bay. And, you know, growing up uh, anywhere near the Chesapeake Bay, you know, if you come down to this area, you oh, see yeah. Save the Bay. Yeah. You still see Save the Bay bumper stickers everywhere, right? So, you know, I think the Chesapeake Bay, for all of us who grew up in this area, um, it, it's, it's just such a pristine, unique ecosystem that has to be preserved. But it's also, in some ways, kind of a, a microcosm of the challenges we face because you have a very robust and growing urban area, you know, the Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Philadelphia corridor, right? Huge population. People need jobs. People need that. You have a lot of agriculture, basically Eastern Shore and the northern neck of Virginia. There's a lot of agriculture in the area. Um, There's a lot of pressures from society. But then you have this amazing natural resource, the Bay, right? And so I think for me, it kind of cements that we got to figure out a way to do this, right? You got to have a balance because people have to have jobs. We'll have to have food. Can we do it in a way that growth is, you know, is not going to destroy something that's absolutely so precious to all of us in this area and really pretty unique in a global perspective? That is the, the Chesapeake Bay. So for me, I think that kind of cemented it in my mind that, yeah, let's think about how how can we do sustainability? But I am a big believer, especially being an ag, you know, any any definition of sustainability also has to include the economic sustainability for the farmer, you know, because it has to be, it's, you got to figure out the whole equation, yeah. right? How do we keep farms a business? How do we keep food being produced? But how do we do it in a way that, that is able to sustain you know, those kinds of precious ecosystems that we all, we all want to sustain? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So when you graduated from college, you, you had a, a stint at uh, the USDA. And I'm wondering what you learned from that perspective, like working in a governmental organization. Yeah, and for me, it was kind of a unique position at USDA. And I'll back up first, though, Harry, because my graduate uh, work was pretty unique in that uh, my thesis advisor, uh, Dr. Norton, great man, but he uh, he actually at that time, this was in the 80s, he had a fledgling uh, kind of biotech company. He had uh, he was doing corporate research for uh, for a, a very large company, a U.S. company, and then he had his academic lab. And so 
as a graduate student, it was a pretty amazing uh, environment because yeah. in the early 80s, having a biotech, I was like, really? Yeah, I thought this is really cool. So I kind of went, you know, unlike a lot of graduate students, it's a very uh, academic kind of atmosphere. It was a very robust innovation kind of ecosystem in the lab, which was cool. And so for me, I kind of got the bug that I love science, but I probably love technology more. And what I mean by that is it's the application of the science. It's what, what is the challenge you're trying to solve? What's the solution you're bringing, uh, you're bringing through your science, right? And so that kind of, uh, that's how it kind of, for me, got me so interested in, okay, how can I apply that? And the laboratory I was in at USDA was actually a lab uh, that was getting uh, getting funding uh, from corporate funding because USDA was also it did it does and still does great basic research, but it also tries to really address significant challenges for American farmers and ranchers. And so being a USDA made sense to me because it was I can apply my science, but I can do it in a way yeah. that's trying to tackle real world problems. And then how what's the technology that's really going to be the enabler? And then you went on to what was going to end up being your largest, the longest stint <laughs> at a company uh, working at uh, Monsanto. So obviously, there's a, probably a long enough story. We'd, we'd probably need a couple of episodes to dig into <laughs> every, everything you, you learned. But there's something about uh, working at a, at a big company. And I myself uh, worked at J.P. Morgan Chase. Uh, so you know, there, there's challenges with what you can and can't get done. So I'm wondering, as, as you think about the arc of you, your career there, what are some of the highlights? Yeah, and I think, you know, for me, just the transition to uh, uh, to Monsanto, it's, it was St. Louis-based, right? And when you're growing up on the East Coast, you're not thinking, gee, I'm going to move to St. Louis <laughs> when I grow up, right? It's, it's not even on your radar, right? It's a, I went out there, and I was happy. I loved what I was doing at USDA. I was right outside my hometown of D.C. It was like, life's good. My wife was like seven months pregnant. We're like, oh. You got, you know, grandchildren, grandparents are all there. Everything's grooved, right? And she goes, what is this company? I said, well, they said they want to talk to me. I'm going to go out and see what they're doing. So I flew, flew out to St. Louis. And this was in the in the 80s, right? So I went there and they had built this purpose-built genomics facility in the 80s. I'm going, are you kidding me? I said, I said looked at, I looked at all the, the incredible science, technology, the, what they were putting into plant science. And I said, Man, these dudes are playing a different game. I mean, this is like this is like at a scale I had never seen for for biology. But they had this vision that was, uh, and it was a very chemical based company. I mean, we were a small unit, the biotechnology unit at Monsanto at that point. But they had this vision that biology was going to be the driver. You know, then you know there were always going to be there still is you know a role for for chemistry for for, for pesticides, et cetera. But Biology was really going to be the next, the next big thing, the next revolution in agriculture. Um, so I uh, bought a uh, sailor's cardinal hat and bought. <laughs> and my wife and I moved. It's in seven and a half months pregnant. Actually, we moved right after my son was born. He was born in DC. We moved out to St. Louis after that. But uh, for me, it was just this vision that you know we were going to do stuff from uh, uh, really trying to take uh, full advantage of, of the modern biology, of all the tools, the genomics, the genetics. And remember, at the same time, of course, there was this massive effort on the Human Genome Project, right? And so you had being driven, the biology revolution being driven by pharmaceutical and by medicinal uses, but agriculture was running a parallel track. And so to be a part of something like that was really exciting. And for me, those were amazing years because it wasn't just trying to find a new product or something. It was really trying to figure out a better way for farmers to grow their crops and to be part of something that's so fundamental that, you know, we're going to be able to have a seed that protects itself 
from from insects. That's what I that was. I was an insect biochemist, so that's what I worked on was how can we have that seed? And then looking, well, how does nature do it? And that's what we found. Uh, I mean, this was known. I mean, Bacillus thuringiensis (Bt) has been used you know, decades, 50, 60 years in organic agriculture. Right? We said, well, what if we take the gene from there, have the plant produce that same protein that that controls the past? But you know, some of the learnings from that was. Uh, definitely think big. <laughs> don't don't think about what's the current market look like. What's the current? Think what is what would be optimal. What are ways to kind of bust through the paradigms? And you know, as it turned out, it became a multi-billion-dollar industry from a pretty small group. I credit uh, Dr. Rob Fraley, who headed headed the technology organization for many years from Monsanto. But he taught me one other thing that was really important. He said, and I, I really appreciate. It, he said, don't fall in love with the science. Fall in love with the solution. And, and I think what I always remember to that was, you know, it's great to have incredible science and we need incredible science. But if you're using that science now to come up with a solution that actually tackles a really big challenge we have, that, Harry, that's just so rewarding. You know, you really feel like, oh, my gosh, this is not this, you know, <laughs> this, this little great science project over here that everybody's going, what the heck is he working on? This is something that really solves real world problems. And I think for me, that was some of the big lessons from Monsanto was. Don't kind of put the uh, put the blinders on trying to solve problems by the way, just finding a new way that's kind of consistent with the way people do it. Think bigger. Think what's the real challenge and then broaden your sphere on, on the solutions. But also that focus on absolutely think about do all do world class science, but let's think about the solutions and let's tackle really big challenges, which is what we tried to do. There's a, I think it's a Benjamin Franklin quote that I'm gonna, probably going to butcher, but it's uh, around the idea, or sorry, it's probably uh, Einstein. It says, you can't solve a problem using the same logic that created it um, in order to find a solution. That's right. Thinking, something to that effect. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. Good quote. I'm going to look it up, see what actually the, <laughs> what the quote is. That's <laughs> no, good though. Like yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, fact, fact check. <laughs> no, no, I don't mean my fact check. I just want to make. I want to put my own personal kind of piggy bank here on. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah like, I'll cool. find it. Cool. You mentioned uh, something. You touched on on one one example, but in, on the topic of leadership, um, and as we get to you know wh- what your current role is, were there any other leaders or or mentors that you had a relationship with in Monsanto that, that were critical or that you, that you think of now? Whose lessons are you're currently applying? Yeah, and I think one of the leaders I had that taught me something I always remembered is, is, is you know, you're going to be leading teams, and you know, and we were growing so rapidly because the, the 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 biotechnology piece became the company, and so we went from this small research unit that then actually became the company, which was a very traditional agri- you know chemical company that really morphed into a biology company. But the uh, one of the things one of my uh, former managers said, and I always appreciate it, is. Even though you're leading the team, make sure you have a piece that is yours, that you're actually doing too. So you're not just leading leaders. You have a piece of it that they're seeing your contributions as well. And I really took that to heart. And as my team grew and I finally... uh, um, they had a little ceremony when they took the pipette man away from me, the, the way you actually dispense things in the laboratory. And so they, they said, you're never coming to this bench. You just can't do it anymore. So they had a little ceremony, played a little music, took away my pet ceremony. It's like that old, uh, that old Western where they took the, the things on the kind of brand, whatever it was called. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, but, 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 but I always tried to stay so that I actually had work of my own. So not just leading leaders, but there was a piece of our organization, our, of our goals that I was going to personally be very vested in so that I'm not just seen as somebody that's leading all these leaders, but 
we all have pieces that we're going to own and we're going to do our do the work themselves. I think it, it gets you a lot of respect. The other piece I learned was don't stay just in the leadership bubble. Get out to the farms. Get out to the customers. Get out. And, oh, yeah. Because where it happens is on the farm, right? And so if you're not out there, mud on the boots, we call it, right? And so if you're not out there mm. really seeing what's happening and seeing what challenges those farmers face, how the heck are you come up with the solution yeah. if you haven't walked? their fields or their greenhouse or glass house or their vertical farm and say, okay, let's really talk about what, what solutions you really need. What were those conversations like, John, like being on the ground, getting, getting those boots muddy, as you say? Oh, no, I love it. I love it because, you know, the thing is you, you just, you learn so darn much, you know, and it's like uh, the respect I have for, for farmers and ranchers, because, you know, the, what, what I always love about it is they're so good at boiling it down to the absolute essence of what they really need. And they're very honest with you, which I, I like to be honest with people too. You know where you stand, you know what they actually need. And I think the other thing that, that's been such a lesson for me um, is the commitment that you just don't meet a farmer or rancher who doesn't share that same commitment from a sustainability standpoint. I mean, this isn't just about growing a crop or growing up, you know, or raising an animal, yeah. but it's about they want it not just for now or not for the season. They want it for this decade, this cent, you know, they're for their family to take generations, it. Yeah. generations. Right. And I know my brother and I have a ranch up in Montana. He, he runs it full time. And I just love it because he has that same energy around. He's not just going to do it. He's going to do it right. And I think you just don't meet too many farmers or ranchers who aren't really trying to produce a crop. Of course they want to, you know, they've got to be economically viable, but they're also thinking about, how can I do this better? How can I improve my operations? And they're constantly challenging themselves to do that. And sustainability is is this top of mind for virtually all of them because it's their land, their water. You know, they're like you said, generational, yeah. right? They want it to be there for their kids and their grandkids, et cetera. So it reminds me of that com uh someone obviously started a company with this concept, but the Native American idea of seven generations, like the the work that you do has repercussions and echoes going forward seventh gener seven generations. So if we all thought about how we conducted our business that way, I think the world, world would be a better place. Yeah, that's exactly right. Exactly right. So talk a little bit about the impact and influence of Bayer. You know, I think uh, it was it was one of those for uh, um, you know we uh, we had a very successful run in Monsanto. Bayer is a very reputable and, and very highly respected corporation. Um, and for Bayer, I think the opportunity to really, uh, even though they had seed companies, I think they saw where the Monsanto expertise, it was a pretty cool resource as far as the genetics knowledge, the biology knowledge, the seed company knowledge. And, and so for Bayer, I really enjoyed my time at Bayer. I was there a couple of years after the acquisition. Unfortunately, I was heading uh, vegetable R&D for, uh, for Monsanto and the bear offered me the very, very similar role. So um, it's a pretty easy transition, actually. And uh, because the other thing that worked with it was the fundamentals and sort of the, 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 the core value systems of these companies were very similar, which is about innovation, about technology, but also trying to provide mm -hmm. sustainable solutions in the marketplace. So that made the transition uh, fairly straightforward, actually. So. So naturally, you know, their their part in the creation of Unfold is what led to where you are now. So what were those early conversations like in terms of you being considered for the position? And, you know, how long, how long did that process take? I'm always curious about, you know, the, the origin story of how people end up in these leadership roles, especially for new ventures, because I imagine there's a lot of eyes, a lot of money being invested in this. So deciding who is the right person for that position, I think is a, is a, is a decision that 
you know, people investing in it don't take lightly. No, exactly, exactly. But you know, I think for when I was with there, uh, we were trying to uh, work to develop new solutions, seed solutions, and digital solutions for vertical farms within the the, the bare vegetable R and D group. But it's it's challenging because there were you know we had so many existing markets, you know, the open field and greenhouse and glasshouse. So you try to carve out this smaller group with a an emerging uh, sector. Um, you know, it's, it's, you always got to feed the beast, right? And so it's like you're constantly saying, well, this is the current business. We got to get products for that. So we always had a challenge there. And that's when the idea kind of came, you know, maybe this was better because of the, the unique nature of the vertical farm uh, that creating a separate dedicated entity uh, would be the way to go. And so, you know, I was fully supportive of that. Um, and then they asked me, would you be interested? And so I threw my hat in the ring. And it was interesting. Uh, process i'll say going through being the selection process like you say when people are putting real money down and both baron tomasic are involved in this it's like yeah they want to make sure that especially for me a lot of the questions frankly were around can you really do this you've been in big ag for a while you've had it i mean i had a big group 800 plus people you know, reporting to me and in, in, in vegetable r&d i love and they, they said we've seen you talk a hundred times i'll say you always say you have the best job in the world why are you saying you want this job now i said well i did have the best job in the world but this job's even better right but, but i said because it's fundamentally it's about helping people grow really you know, delicious uh fr- produce so i said this you know and healthy produce etc so i said yeah and the other thing that that really i think one of the big Question marks that, that that was kept coming up during the uh, um, during the interview process was around uh, what really drives you, and that's when you know some of the things I was telling you. It's really about the solution side of thing and that innovation side. One of the things I always tried to do through my times both at Monsanto and Bear was stay on the the, the cutting edge piece. You know, we're always working on the latest stuff, and we were fortunate that both Monsanto and Bear innovation is their enabler, right? So, but I think um, for me. I had a real interest in uh, in vertical farms. I had uh, I really see it as a, as a significant player for uh, uh, the produce industry. And um, you know, frankly, personally, I've accomplished a lot. I got no complaint. I've you know I've been all around the world. I've headed big groups. I've had you know tremendous opportunities and, and experiences. But one experience I never had was heading a startup. And so it's like, let's go for it. So I threw my hat in the ring, made it through the uh, the interview process, and. And here we are, and it's uh, it's been really cool. But it's a different world. There's no question, and you don't have you don't have any other people behind you helping you out, right? It's like it's just a few of you trying to figure it out. But it's it's a fun world though here. It really is. Thinking about uh, the challenges with growing a startup and building a team, how did you go about thinking what the component or the the proportion of skill sets you would need to build that team? Like how many? You know, obviously scientists and and data science and and marketing and and, you know you've got all the departments and you have to strike that fine balance in order to find you know which is the right team that i can trust and that can get us to where we need to and to to execute on what i imagine bears expecting (laughs) how do you think about that as you're building a team i'm always fascinated about that from a startup perspective yeah and i think you know one of the one of the things you got to be really clear about is what are the things that have to happen in the next, you know, especially the next six months, 12 months, two years, et cetera? What is, you know, when it comes to the time of, of uh, you know, really looking at where is the company, what is it you have to have established? And for me, that that meant we had to get our R&D organization set up. You know, we we are we are thinking about commercial roles and all that. We, we're, we're adding a few, but 
you know, the bulk of our team is going to be, you know, the biologists, the breeders, but then of course, cause it's vertical, the engineers. And then I'm glad you mm, said data yeah. science. I think one of the biggest, coolest things that's happened in, in agriculture over the last 10 years or so is this confluence of the digital world and the biology world. I call it Silicon Valley meets Salinas Valley. I mean, it's like, it's, it's really awesome because it, it really yeah. is uh, taking advantage of the amazing progress that's been happening, uh, you know, in the digital world and then applying it to how do you grow a crop. And I think, um, so we're gonna have a heavy dose of that. So our, you know, our team is really putting together with uh, folks that have those kind of backgrounds, you know, the, the, the biology, the produce background, but our VP of product, Mickey, she's, she's terrific. Mickey Seibel, she came in from, uh, from, from that whole Silicon Valley world, um, you know, so through, uh, um, eBay and Delive and those kinds of, those kinds of things. And she heads up product for us and she's been terrific because she understands that whole digital platform, that whole, you know, how to, how do we think about the software engineering piece and all that? So that gives us a huge leg up. And then we're, uh, we're bringing in other, other folks who came in from more traditional uh, produce backgrounds, which is important too, but um, it's fun to put together the team. And I think we got some, uh, we got some really great, uh, great uh, leaders coming in and then we'll build the teams uh, as we move forward. Once we have the leadership team in place. What's interesting about that is this mix that we, you have mentioned and touched upon about, the need for strong background in in data science. Um, I've worked, you know, in business intelligence implementation, so I understand. You know, there's a lot of moving parts. I've had a couple of great conversations with David Farquhar of Intelligent Growth Solutions (IGS), so you know they understand the challenges. I just had a conversation yesterday with Eddie Badrina. He's the new CEO at Eden Green, and he comes from a marketing background, and he talks about this idea of understanding product market fit, which you know, if you're coming from you know the ag ag world, you know, you're focused on, 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 you know, delivering that from an agricultural perspective, but then understanding there are some challenges if you want to succeed that you have to understand the digital world as well. (laughs) And there's so many moving, so many moving parts and, and so many things to measure too, which I think was fascinating as well for me understanding. I had a chat with, uh, for season two with Tobias Pegg from Square Roots. And, and again, talking about he, he comes from the software world as well. So there's so many things to measure. And I think that's what a lot of people who are getting into vertical farming may not realize is there's a lot of variables to control, but, uh, on the flip side, also a lot of variables to measure, um, and to the extent that you can do that and have success with that means, you, you know, controls your ability to incrementally improve. No, that's exactly right. And I think what's cool about, and one of the reasons why, you know, we've had some really great conversations with uh, so many players that, that are that are actually operating the vertical farm uh, production facilities, um, is the missing ingredient's been genetics. It's really been the the biology side of things. And I think fact that they've done an amazing job of building uh, these production facilities and are able to control the, the the environmental parameters so exquisitely right and having the kinds of systems in place and the robotics automation the you know the uh, the environmental control systems in place uh, they've also I think have some great technology uh, and this is bridging between the AG piece net to measure what's happening at the plant level you know the sensors the probes so it's you have the you have the ability to control the environment. You have the ability to measure then how the plant responds to that. We're going to be able to come in now at the earlier stage and say, what are the genetic elements that allow that plant to respond most effectively to that environment that you're controlling? So when I think about those three digital pieces, controlling the environment, I think they're in great shape. They they really know how to do that quite well. Understanding then what's happening at the plant level, good progress, but I think more to come and more coming in from the exit. But now understanding at the genetic level and using digital means. Uh, we talk a lot about predictive breeding where you're not just testing and trialing things, 
you're actually understanding well enough about the, the, the genes within that plant to be able to make predictions on here are the crosses you need to make. Here's the kind of uh, uh, genetic breeding strategies you need to do that. And I think you put those three kind of digital packages together, it's going to be a really cool future for, uh, for vertical farming. How do you, uh, for folks that are new to the space and seeing it from afar, you know, they see uh, only because of the head start, you, you see a, a lot in the news about what Plenty is doing, what uh, AeroFarms is doing. And I'm wondering when you think about explaining to folks how Unfold is wants to differentiate themselves. You did mention the focus on genetics, and I don't know that, that as many companies are, are doing that. But when you think about the markets you want to play in, where specifically in, in vertical farming, in indoor ag tech, you want to be seen as, as a leader, how do you explain that to, to folks who are trying to understand this a little bit, a little bit better? Yeah, and I think that's that's really a key differentiator because for most, you know, a lot of the companies, you know, are great companies who have established and, and are doing a great job already, you know, producing crop. We want to be the, the the seed provider of choice because right now, you know, what, what they're doing is they're going out looking at seed companies and, and buying it from uh, from Bayer and other you know very reputable seed companies. Um, I think what's going to be different is now we're going to be developing varieties specifically for vertical farms. You know, a lot of the materials that are being grown were developed for other purposes, and then you basically test it and say, does it work? Versus yeah. we're going to have our own R&D vertical farm facility where we're actually going to be developing the genetics specifically for vertical farms. So I think that's the big difference. You know, we're not, we're not going to be the, the produce uh, you're not going to be the producer of that produce. We're going to be the raw ingredient, the seed that goes into all these vertical farms. So all those companies you mentioned, I want to sell seed to all of them. <laughs> so I want to be their preferred supplier. So so we're at the we're at the front end of this thing, which is the way you know. One thing you got to recognize here is you, you look at other mark other production systems, whether it be open field or greenhouse or glasshouse. For all of those, you have dedicated. If you're at Bayer, if you're at one of the big seed companies, you have dedicated programs. You know, you're not just taking whatever and seeing where it works. You have programs defined that are defined by what are the needs for that specific market? And you hone the genetics for that. What's been missing in vertical, and I've been giving talks at Vertical Farming Conference the last couple of years, is where's your genetics coming from? Where is that, you know, those seeds that have been specifically developed for vertical, which is why I got to tell you, the response has been great. We've had conversations with so many of the companies, many of them you just mentioned, about you know, how can we yeah. help? How can we provide a solution to, that, that'll make your, your uh, uh, you know, make your business more successful? And that's what we're about, making them successful. How much of what experience, um, not only Bayer, but also Temasek brings to, um, to unfold is important for you to, to lean on? I know I, I read something that because of uh, it's, it's Temasek's role being closely linked to what's happening in, in Singapore, are there lessons in, in what's been done earlier that you can build upon there? Yeah, and I think uh, one of the things was really great. Let me talk about Temasek, Temasek first. I think they you know, one of the great things about Temasek is they are they're not just. I mean, they're a very large investment uh, firm, you know, with many many assets that they're uh, you know that they're investing in companies around the world. Um, but the other thing I think is really impressive about them is they're true thought leaders. I mean, they really want to participate in markets and with companies that they think will uh, better the human the human condition, if you will, globally. So they really look for those opportunities for investing in those kinds of things that will make a difference. And that's cool. And I think it's really cool when you go visit them in Singapore, it's real. I mean, it's, you know, a lot of people have stuff like this on their website. When you go there, that's what they talk about. And that's how they think about their investment portfolio. Um, and of course, they have incredible network uh, and relationships. 
um, and in Singapore and Asia, but really globally because they make their investments globally. But I do really appreciate their their thought leadership. Um, for Bear, you know, the it's a technology company, it's an ag company, and one of the really attractive parts of the way the company our company is structured is we have a license to the Bear germplasm, and so we're not going to have to figure out how do we get all these seeds. You know, we have the ability to. Uh, take advantage of the, and I know I'm biased, I headed R&D there, of course, but, you know, arguably they have one of the best seed collections in the world. We're going to be able to take advantage of that and then use that genetics to really develop the, the varieties for vertical farming. But that license is huge because that really is the enabler. Um, and for any startup to be able to have that kind of technology base to build upon is is just terrific. So for me, that's what got me excited. I mean, obviously, they would greatly appreciate the funding from Bayer and Tomasic, but the license and the ability to take advantage of that Bayer germplasm is huge because now we have a huge leg up and we'll have the exclusive rights to that for vertical farming. Bayer is going to continue, you know, in for open field, greenhouse and glasshouse. We're going to be the, the engine for, uh, for, um, uh, for the vertical farming sector. One of the things I thought was interesting was Tomasic mentioning their their thirty by thirty policy goals is to have thirty percent of the city's uh, nutritional needs sourced domestically by twenty thirty, which would be up uh, I think it's ten percent from where they are today. So, is are, are those? Do you set think about goals like that as you think about where you want to be? You know, five years, ten years from now. Well, yeah, and I think that's why when you look at countries like Singapore. It's very aspirational. I think so. I think it's less than ten percent of the food they consume is actually grown domestically right now, right, and or produced domestically. So, you know, basically tripling it in in you know ten years. But what they have going for them is it's a very uh, highly high high tech kind of uh, uh, country as far as the knowledge base. They have capital, and I think they look at vertical as one of the tickets to actually be able to grow their own food, right? Because they don't have a lot of arable land. And so how are you going to do it? Yeah. And there are other countries yeah, yeah. too in, in that same situation. If you look at where some of the largest vertical farms are being manufactured, the Middle East, right? Same kind of situation. You have high capital reserves, a lot of technology, very savvy from yeah. electronics and all that. Uh, but they don't have, well, they have land, but it's all desert and it's very expensive to grow. So vertical, again, fits in very well there. So when I think about kind of the market sectors, there's no question those countries um, who are looking at to improving their self-sufficiency from a food perspective. And Singapore is a classic example. And that 30 by 30 is a really cool thing for the country to, 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 to aspire to. Um, but that's definitely one sector is those countries that are going to commit to vertical in a big way because they see that as one way to, uh, um, you know, to, to increase their domestic food production. And, you know, with all the geopolitical challenges around the world and, of course, COVID really you know, put a spotlight on this is, you know, you got to think about your supply chain, see where food's coming from, et cetera. So yeah. the more the countries can do and what are the technologies that fit best and countries like Singapore and, and Middle East see, see vertical farming as a definitely critical element to, uh, to driving their own uh, domestic production. A bit of education for the listener, the term germplasm, you want to define that and, and educate people a little bit on this? On, on this uh... just, just think of it. Yeah, I'm sorry. Just think about the seeds, right? The seeds, sorry. Germplasm. Germplasm basically is a general term for, it's basically the, the genetics within the seed. So when you go and if you're a if you're a backyard gardener, you pick out and there's certain varieties you like. Oh, I like that one. I like that. You knew it worked well for you before. That collection of all those seeds is a germplasm. Sorry, some jargon there, but yeah. That's what it is. No, it's okay. No, sometimes it's helpful. And especially in in this industry, there's a lot of terms that most people initially will be familiar with. But I think especially since you're focused on seeds, I think that's that's the key. I think some people forget. And I I remember in some of my earlier conversations, I was thinking, okay, 
you're using seeds that were developed for outdoor farming, um, but now you're there's a whole bunch of different challenges that you have, and and how do you create and and have crops that are conducive to, to to being grown indoors, which I thought was fascinating. Yeah, and I will say this here: one of the huge advantages we're going to have, frankly, from a breeding perspective, is a lot of the time that you spend and a lot of the resources to to have that seed that works well in an open field, for example, is to build in uh, resistances to diseases or to pests or to build in resistances to abiotic yeah. stresses, you know, temperature ranges, you know, very different, you know, weather conditions from, from climate, you know, from, from rain or uh, precipitation, et cetera. So you have to have seed that withstands all of this variability from an environmental perspective. There's a classic equation in breeding, basically G by E, you know, it's, it's a genotype by the environment. Well, you're controlling that environment. So now you can really, really focus on the genetics and you can focus on, you don't have to worry about a lot of things that you normally have to worry about when you think about breeding that seed. And that's really cool because now you can really think about what's most important at the consumer level. How do you get that great taste, that fresh? How do you get you know the, the kind of sensory experience that consumers want? And then also you can focus on the kind of agronomic or the kind of growing uh, parameters that are important for vertical farms. You know how the plant responds to light. You know the architecture of the plant so it's amenable to vertical farm um, uniformity. So the crop all matures at the same point because many vertical farms use robotic harvesting, right? So you can really hone yeah. in on here are the kinds of characteristics both at the grower level and at the consumer level. And there's a whole bunch of stuff you don't have to worry about, which from a <laughs> from a breeding standpoint is great because the environment's being controlled for you. And that's really one of the advantages because the environment is being controlled. You really do have a very consistent quality standard every day of the year. And that to me is is tremendous. How do you think about the types? Obviously, there's hundreds of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of, of varieties that you could go after and decide like where you want to focus your time in first. But given, given the environment you're, you're working in, how do you think about what crops you do want to focus on for this first round? You know, is it, you know, because obviously everyone's leafy greens is everything when, when we get started and people moving into strawberries and other crops. But how do you and the team think about where you want to focus the the the, the bulk of, of that research time in these early months? Yeah, so we've got five crops that, that we've chosen. And we're starting with two leafy uh, lettuce and spinach, which are obvious ones. Um, you know, because that, as you say, that really is where the vast majority of the market is right now. You know, it's 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 the lettuce, the spinaches, it's microgreens, it's you know some some herbs and things. I'm really convinced that in order for vertical to really grow to its true potential, it has to make the leap to fruiting crops. Yeah, it's a really cool industry. It's seen growth and all this, but to really grow to the expectations that a lot of people have. That's where our next three crops that we're going to have are tomato, pepper, and cucumber. Mm. And because there's a reason why glasshouse growers, high-tech glasshouse especially, focus on tomato, pepper, cucumber. They're highly differentiable. There's consumer traits. Sensory is king when they get to those crops. And so vertical, yeah. I am convinced vertical has to make that leap. And we are really hopeful that we'll be the provider of the seed that allows them to do that. Because I think uh, – they're high value crops, and they're also ones that are uh, incredibly uh, valuable from a consumer perspective, but also the kinds of characteristics consumers look for in those crops. 
are amenable to having that very hyper local kind of production, fresh product because people love it's nothing better than a great tomato popping in your mouth. Wow, that tastes great. Yeah. And when you produce it local, cucumber salad. Yeah, cucumber salad, right? <laughs> you know, all these kind of, you know, those are the those are the kinds of things yeah. that are, you, you know, you can't you can't survive on leafies alone. You gotta have the you know the whole the whole, whole spectrum of crops. So, so tomato pepper cucumber be the next three for us. But you're right, berries is another one that's an obvious one because yeah. flavor again is so and People love when it, when they taste right. Oh man, they taste great, right? And oh, then yeah. the others is like, ah, that's like right there. <laughs> <laughs> I think what a lot of people and what I've noticed is a common trend is, I think it's education because people are they're used to going to the supermarket and not understanding how much that lettuce has had to travel to get to their plate and how much flavor is lost along the process. And I think having the closer, you know times and and connection to like when that when it's picked and to when to the time to it actually appears on your plate makes a huge difference in flavor I, I may be speaking for you already but i think as as you think about you know working at the gene level um flavor is is probably a very very key component which is you already have because of accessibility to the crop but i think that's something that's important as well no absolutely and you've hit a really key thing because anytime you can shave days off of how long it takes to get to the store and then to the consumer, that's huge, right? And so I think uh, um, because you're automatically getting something that's fresher and it just, it tastes better. And, and I will say, you know, the, the, of course, I, I live in California, the growers do an amazing job. I mean, considering how much the produce is produced in California, it ends up in New York, in New England, and, you know, around the, because that's the only place where you can have that kind of level of production. And that's going to continue. But the more we can start to build these local solutions in vertical being part of that, it's just going to provide a different flavor experience because you're taking thousands of miles and days off of the time it takes. And that goes all the way back to, well, when now, when do you have to harvest it? You know, when did, how long do you have to ship? How do you have to ship? There's a lot of, a lot of considerations that are taken out of the equation. And I think that's, uh, um, that's one of the advantages of vertical is produce it where people live. And, and then, uh, you know, you're gonna have a better, better sensory experience, a better flavor profile. I know it's hard to think about things that we didn't see coming and, and COVID definitely falls into that category, but how do you think about any challenges that might be coming up for you that could be unforeseen? And how do you as a leader prepare for, for things like that of that nature? Yeah, that's always the, uh, that's always the trick is because you map out and everybody has their, their kind of, uh, uh, the, the strategy sessions going out one, two, three, five years. But I always find usually after a year, Bessie, when you got three or four years, it's like, okay, let's re <laughs> let's rethink it because you just, you just never, you never know. But I think, and I think it goes both ways though. I mean, some of it are, there's roadblocks that come up, but others is there's enablers. I mean, you know, look at vertical farming. Uh, mm. Somebody put out a great graph that has the price of led lights. And then the the number of vertical farms, and it's like, yeah. yep, <laughs> there's the curve, right? And so there's there's technological advances that you may not foresee, and I think that's one of the things you try to do as a scientist is really put yourself in that because your your breeding timelines can be three, four, five years. So you have to be projecting out not what the market yeah. is now, but what yeah, the yeah. market's going to be. But now that's the trick, right? Is what's the but I do think. I encourage though, my leadership always let's take both directions. What are the things that can be really a derailer? But then what might happen from an enabling standpoint that just makes our life a heck of a lot easier? I, I always keep in mind that Mike Tyson quote that everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> <laughs> He's had good experience with that. So that's, <laughs> that's another good quote. Yeah. What's a hard question you've had to ask yourself recently? I think one of it is, 
and it's getting better now that we're adding people on the team. But I got to say the first month, six weeks, eight weeks, when literally it was me and, and one or one Nikki we brought in early, we were doing everything. I mean, literally everything. And uh, it was funny because we actually talked about because a number of companies do a uh, number of months in a stealth mode to kind of put together things before you really. And um, we had a very yeah. short stealth period, <laughs> but I do see why companies do that now. Because it's like, you're deluged. I mean, it's like crazy how many people want to talk to you. And, and so, and you want to do it yeah, because yeah. you want to be out there talking, but then you're also trying to build a company. Right. And so when I think about the, is yeah, this, yeah. is this nuts? You know, we're, we're doing all this and we're having a million conversations every day too, but it's an adrenaline rush. I mean, it, it is fun. You would do it, but I do think it's, it's a getting a little easier now that we're adding more people. We're getting more you know, leadership team together to share that load. But I got to tell you the first, you know, when we were, we were doing so much media and so much customer stuff and everybody there was, they were juiced about having, there's a genetics company now in vertical. Yeah. So all the companies, yeah. oh, we were talking to all of them and they were excited. We're excited. It's like, it's only the two of us. So give us give us a few weeks here before we can actually give you something yeah. that actually has value. But uh, yeah, that was the the oh my gosh, what am I doing? Yeah, but it's definitely getting better. <laughs> What's something you've changed your mind about recently? Something I've changed my mind about. I, I think um, something I, I've really tried to do is don't be judgmental. I think you know, and I hmm. think for me, maybe part of it is just the current political situation where everything is just so. Yeah. You know, just so divided into, and I just yeah. trying to. I, I challenge myself to not react quickly to, you know, oh, they're so, you know, what, you know, versus, all right, let's really have a conversation. And so for sure. me, that's going to change my mind is give myself the permission, and hopefully, you'll get people invited in to, you know, and have a real conversation because, oh my gosh, it's so lacking these days. I mean, where everything is just you know, so yeah. black and white and right and wrong and, you know, versus, yeah. and that's really sad because we're better than that, you know? And so yeah. that's something I'm, I'm trying to change my courses. Don't react, think about it and think about what if you had the conversation with the person, maybe it's, it's not what you think it is. Right. And so yeah, hope for, hope for 2021. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's this idea of disagreeing without being disagreeable. Yeah. You know, yeah, I agree. Yeah, that's that's what I'm trying to challenge myself to be a better person that way. And I do think COVID, we've all had a lot, lots of times to reflect, right? Which is actually a good part of it, you know. But you know, let's yeah. let's reflect on how how we conduct ourselves. And I think we find that there's at the end of the day, there's more that that binds us together that we have in common that that divides us. It's easy to get into one of these arguments online, faceless. You don't know who you're just going to tweet back and forth at somebody or send an email. But if you put the two people in the room, it's you'll find that like you know, my initial thought would be like, how's your family doing? Like, how are you doing? Like, you know, we're all, at the end of the day, we're all human beings trying to make the most of our time here on this planet. So I think, uh, to your point, just the more we can do more of that, the better. No, I agree. And Harry, and even, you know, in agriculture, because of course coming through, uh, through Monsanto, right. Where there were, there were venues that were like, Oh my, it's so heated. But then once you, if you have the opportunity to really talk and you realize, well, actually, you know, they're thinking about sustainability. They're thinking about, you know, how do yeah. we grow things better way? Yeah. Oh, let's talk about how, how can we build on that, right? There is a core value yeah. that we actually both share, even though we may not recognize it from the, where we might, you know, what organization they're in and what organization I'm in. But then you start talking, you realize, yeah. actually, you know, we actually believe in a lot of the same things. We're yeah. just thinking there's a different way to get there, right? And so, but exactly. if you don't have the conversation, you'll never get to that point. But That's true. 
So as, as we wrap up, uh, John, as you think about what's coming up, what has you excited about vertical farming? And it could be related to what you're working on Unfold or just in general about the industry. Oh, I think, you know, any time we can introduce new ways to, to uh, really provide what consumers are looking for in the case of having, a, um, you know, hyper-local, fresh, good tasting, and with some good sustainability attributes, that's a really cool thing for uh, for agriculture. And I think, um, and you know, back to the, the point we were just talking about, one of the things I want to really hope the industry does is don't disparage other ways of producing food because everybody's working their butts off trying to yeah. you know, trying to do things right. You don't want, my mom always said, don't raise yourself by pushing other people down. And I always took that to heart, right? You know, just, you can talk about your benefits without being disparaging to way yeah. other systems are, but let's build it together. Because especially in food and agriculture, there's fewer and fewer of us every year in it trying to produce for more and more people on the planet. So let's think about it as we're all playing a part in this thing. And, uh, uh, but for me, what's exciting is I think vertical is, you know, I think about that kind of spectrum of technologies from open field to net house to greenhouse to glass house. This is just the next evolution of it where now you're, a glasshouse grower does a lot to control environment, but we'll, you know, vertical really does pretty much control all the environmental attributes. Mm -hmm. And that's really cool to be able to provide, you know, a production system that really has high quality, but also has some great sustainability attributes as well. And that's a fun industry to be in. It's cool when my daughter tells me I'm cool. I think now you're cool. Yes. Your daughter says you're cool. <laughs> that's right. Hey, I made it now, man. <laughs> Hey, what for a dad? What's better than that? Right? <laughs> your twenty-seven-year-old daughter said you're cool. It's like, yeah. <laughs> Hashtag vertical farming. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly. <laughs> What's interesting is also the also these opportunities because people are talking about like these loss of jobs now, but there's now these new industries and these and these new pathways that are being created for people so that they can transition into these newer this new generation of, of jobs and, and i think that's that holds a lot of yeah, promise i'm really glad you raised it here because i think this other cool part i'm really excited about and you think a lot about legacy you know as you get in your up in your career and, and uh, i'm a decade beyond you but the uh you know i think the way that uh some of the cool things with the digital footprint now in agriculture and and things like the robotics and the automation, um, all the digital platforms, uh, vertical farming. We're bringing in a whole new generation of people who are now interested in producing food that that you know didn't come like me came through you know an ag kind of background. Yeah. They're all you know, coming from all different backgrounds, but they're sharing that passion for let's figure out a better way to grow food. And that's really cool to see the different disciplines, the different kind of backgrounds people are having now that are plugging into food production, which is awesome. That's very good. Well, John, I want to thank you for uh, taking the time to to jump on this 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 chat. It's really interesting to hear your backstory, and I think it's going to be inspira inspirational for people because I, you know there's many different paths, and and I think on this podcast, what's been the common thread is that there's no one road that leads to a job in vertical farming. <laughs> Yeah, and which is really great. And I think uh, when people hear your story uh, as well, so I want to appreciate uh, you for telling the story. And I think people will be closely watching what's happening with Unfold because what you're doing coming in essentially at the DNA level, you know, with, with seeds, I think is going to be exciting to watch. So um, best of luck with what you're doing. Hey, thank you so much. I really enjoyed the conversation, Aaron. Fantastic. And uh, it's unfold.ag is the website. Any other links that would be helpful for, for listeners who want to learn more? Yeah, just follow, follow us. We're on, uh, we're on Instagram as well. And so keep, uh, keep check us out on LinkedIn as well. So, yeah. And we'll make sure all those links are in the show notes as well. I want to appreciate it. Uh, uh, you taking the time again. Thanks, John. Great. Thank you. So thanks again to John for sharing that inspiring story. It's always fascinating to hear how some of these bigger companies and some of these 
new mergers are creating technologies and solutions for the vertical farming industry, and it seems to be changing constantly every week. And I'm grateful for the opportunity to get a sneak peek inside. Special thanks to our episode sponsor, Series Greenhouse Solutions. Series is creating sustainable growing environments by combining smart design, innovative technology, and dynamic partnerships. Learn more at seriesgs.com. That's C-E-R-E-S-G-S dot com. If you enjoyed this episode or past episodes, I'd love it if you leave a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. We'll be sure to read them out on future episodes. Until we meet again next week, here's to your health. Thanks for listening. To read the full show notes for this episode, which includes any links mentioned in the episode, as well as a full show transcription, visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com. There, you can sign up for our email list to be notified when new episodes are published.